From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Our nation is confronting challenges on almost every front. So why invest money in historic sites when the challenges are so great? Places like historic Sodderley, located in southern Maryland, can make the case for why we should make that investment. Sodderley has worked to become an exceptional cultural and educational resource for its region and state. And through its ongoing work, it strives to help build a better community with local and regional partners. On today's episode of PreserveCast, we're talking with Nancy Easterling, the executive director of Historic Sodderley, about tackling the complex history of a plantation and how that conversation can improve communities. Hey, it's Nick here, and a quick reminder before we get started that your support makes a big difference. So please, head on over to preservecast.org and make a quick contribution today. And while you're at it, can you give us a five-star review in your favorite podcast app? That brings us to more people and helps us keep on preserving. Also, I want to remind you that the 1772 Foundation is a sponsor of PreserveCast, and we couldn't do it without their help. Now, let's get started with today's episode. Nancy Easterling has been with Historic Sodderly Incorporated since 2005 and has been in her current role of Executive Director since 2009. Nancy has a degree in biology from the University of Hawaii and has lived in the state of Maryland since 1999. Prior to coming to Maryland, she had the opportunity to move all over the country as a part of a Navy family and held a variety of jobs during that time. The need to be flexible, constantly adapt, and look at things with a sense of humor are skills learned through military life, which she feels has served her well in her museum and nonprofit work. During her tenure at Historic Sodderly, the organization has expanded the holistic way it tells Sodderly's stories and interprets its complex history to include the realities of slavery and its legacy. The organization has worked to become a thought leader on addressing the topic of slavery and race, and through its programming, seeks to promote equity on many fronts, racial, social, and food. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we are joined by Nancy Easterling, who is the Executive Director of Historic Sodderly, a wonderful historic site in Southern Maryland that we're going to get to learn all about and some of the interesting and innovative ways in which they're telling their story. But before we get started, we, we always love to learn a little bit more about our PreserveCast guests. So, um, Nancy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, Where did you grow up and what put you on the path to this current career and, and this, this job that obviously you have a great passion for? Uh, Nick, it's wonderful to be here. Um, I actually grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, but um, when I was still in college, I got married to somebody in the Navy. So I could look at most of my growing up years really as being uh, moving from place to place. We moved all over. In fact, when we moved to Maryland, it was the first time I had moved across a a coast or a con from coast to coast or across the ocean because we lived in Hawaii two different times. So I got to live in a lot of different places, see a lot of different people, which was which was amazing. And I think in some way, um, my my Navy life shaped me and kind of weirdly helped lead me to where I am today because for me, uh, the support group within the military always being there, it's always about what you can do to make make the group better, make, make life better for people. And there is that, um, that element of service that comes with being in the military. And I always loved um, education. 
I always loved working with, I loved working with kids. In fact, in some stints, when I was moving around, I would even substitute teach. I miss the little guys terribly. But um, when I came here to Sauterley, I came here on a couple of trips we moved to here in Southern Maryland back in 1999, thought I'd only be here for three or four years and move on. And here we still are today. We ended up settling here. And um, first time I came here was um, how many people get to a historic site. They're trying, their, their parents are visiting and they're trying to get everybody out of the house. So I came here to Sauterley. But what really drew me to this site and to this, because I went on tons of field trips with my kids. I was the field trip. I went on all of them. And there are rhythms of field trips. There are ways that kids, you know, they're all jacked up in the morning and they're, they're, they're running like crazy in the middle of the day. And then at the end of the day, they're kind of, you know, talking about who spilled milk out their nose. I came with my eighth grade son to a slavery to freedom program here at Sauterley. And in that field trip, there were so many ways that the children through hands-on activities, through being, you know, being in authentic places, got to kind of think about things differently. And on the way home on the bus, and I sit in the back of the bus with the kids, so I'm a brave parent. And I and eighth graders are sweet, but they are hormones on legs. Let me tell you, they're a mess. And um, I am listening to these kids. And, and for the first time ever on a field trip, I heard them talking about what they'd experienced on the field trip. Can you believe the enslaved had to do this? Oh, I, I, I just, I would have run away, but what if you'd gotten caught? And these, these discussions were happening with eighth graders. And I thought that is an impactful field trip. And just a few, um, two months later, I heard that they had a job opening here and, and I moved in, not into my current role. I've moved into that in 2005. But I really was taken with a site that had the ability to connect. And that's one of the things I truly love about historic sites uh, as opposed to other museums. And I love all museums, don't get me wrong, but there's something about being where it happened, a place where it happened. And I saw how a place like this could affect the lives of the people and the perspectives of the people that came here. So it's kind of how my journey to coming here started. That's such a unique, I mean, I don't think, um, you know, we, we've had a lot of different conversations. In fact, I think this is our 150th, 150th episode that we're recording. Um, but I, I don't know if I've ever heard so far someone say that they went on a field trip with a kid and then sort of fell in love with the site. So it's a very interesting way and, and really makes the case for the value of field trips, which I know are sort of, under siege and obviously right now during COVID times are sort of off the table. Um, and, and we were talking before we, we hit record today about, you know, the, the profound challenges that you guys are facing. But um, I, I will say uh, to the PreserveCast listeners, Soderly is in, is in good hands with you. So I, I, ha I am confident um, it, will, it will weather the storm. But before we get into Soderly and we talk a little bit about it, and there, there is even sort of a as always, a little connection with Preservation Maryland um, early on in Soderley's story. But I think for people, you know, we have listeners all across the country, all across the world for that matter, um, who may not have been to Southern Maryland before. Um, so can you kind of paint a picture of what is Southern Maryland like? What's the landscape like? What's the the history? What 
if if you were trying to explain Southern Maryland to someone, both the landscape, the history, why does a place like this matter and what's it like living there? Um, it's interesting, even within the state, and Maryland is, a, if, you're, if, if you're not from Maryland and you're listening, Maryland is such a diverse state, so much, a real diversity of landscapes and environments. And Southern Maryland, when I try to describe Southern Maryland, everybody thinks we're on the Eastern shore. And I said, no, no, no. We're between, we're as far, we're as close to, you know, go stay right next to Virginia and go as far south as you can. And that's where we are. So we are on the western shore of the Chesapeake. So when you look at Southern Maryland and, and, and uh, we're in St. Mary's County, in the Tri-County area in Southern Maryland down here, Calvert, Charles, and St. Mary's, St. Mary's is on a peninsula. So we, you have to come to us with intent when we are worth the trip. We are so worth the trip, but we are surrounded by water and, and all of Southern Maryland is dominated bet between the Patuxent and the Potomac rivers. We are in the Chesapeake Bay. We are dominated by a, a water landscape and a water history connected to the um, water in so many aspects of history between the watermen who are still part of our culture here to the, the way that people came here and traveled here and were interacting here on the water. It's also a very rural as far and agrarian in its nature. A lot of, uh, a lot of connections with tobacco here. A different kind of tobacco was grown in Maryland. It had a different burn rate and it was prized for the way that you could combine it with others to get like that perfect burn. So tobacco and all forms of agriculture are uh, have been part of our history, but it still has a lot of agriculture down here. A lot of farms, farm stands, Amish communities. But in St. Mary's, it's interesting because you even have uh, the Patuxent, Naval uh, Air Station, Patuxent River. So you've had kind of the influx of uh, history of a Navy and test pilot school down here. So there's a lot of interesting interactions down here, but there is a, a way to have a, a diversity of things that you can find down here, but still feel like you're escaping only 45 minutes from the Beltway. So you feel like you've come to a very different place down here. Um, like I said, you have to come with intent, but we're worth it. Yeah, it's it really is a, a beautiful area, and I I like I have to say as the executive director of Preservation Maryland, I love all of Maryland, but um, I think Southern Maryland is cool because it it I love the landscape. It, it feels like the Eastern Shore in some ways, but it's like the Eastern Shore with hills. Um, so it's it has a little bit more visual interest in in that way. Um, and obviously, it's it's also where the earliest settlement of the state begins, and so um, it's just it's it's incredibly rich with history and you really do get that sense when you visit the landscape. So speaking of the landscape and this rich history, um, let's talk about Sodderley. So Sodderley is, is a pretty unique place. What's the story? Who built it? Who constructed it? Who worked there? Let's talk about the history of it and then, then we'll kind of move into what it is today. You know, um, when you go to historic sites uh, and if you think about the historic sites that most people are familiar with, you're usually looking at the story of maybe one particularly famous person or a particularly famous family, or you're looking at how it represents one era of our nation's history. Southerly is not that place. 
And that is one of the reasons um, it is unique in the way that actually helps affect the way that we can tell our story. It is beginning in 1703 is when we start telling our story, even though the first uh, owner, James Bolt, did buy the property in 1699 because the plantation house dates to 1703. That's really when we start our interpretation. We acknowledge that there were, of course, were Native Americans here on the site before that, but that is not part of our direct interpretation. We know down at historic St. Mary's City, there is more of that interpretation because of the start of our nation, uh, of our, of our, I'm sorry, of our state's capital. But here at Sauterly, there were a variety of owners. You went from James Bowles to George Plater II, 3rd, 4th, and 5th. And then it was the Briscoe family. And then finally, the Satterleys owned it. So you had a different owners of uh, over the years. But for the first 160 years of this, uh, over 160 years of this site's existence, slavery was part of this site's reality. And so we still have an authentic 1830 slave cabin, a very rare thing. If you go to places like uh, Montpelier or Monticello or uh, Mount Vernon, you will not find an authentic slave cabin. There still is one here, and it is very central to the way that we tell our story. Here we don't look at one, one person, one era. It is white black, free, and enslaved. It's about the interaction and the realities of that community over a 300-year period. And we interpret all the way up till the time the um, museum was incorporated as a nonprofit back in 1961, even though we, when we're telling the story, we go a little past that as well to where we are today. So it's a complex and rich history, very difficult in some ways to cover that much. I don't know many people that try to cover that much of a time frame, but that continuum of history and the things that did change and, and didn't change is also a big part of how we tell our story. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, for someone who hasn't visited, and and I would encourage once once uh, it's it's safe again to travel and feel, people feel comfortable doing it, um, Sauterly should be on your list of places to visit because, you know, there are a handful now, and, and it's growing, but of plantation sites that have really embraced this sort of broad and diverse story, and I feel like we're so lucky in Maryland to have a place like Sauterly that really does tell the the full diversity of the story. The exhibits are fantastic. Um, and, and it is interesting. Um, and maybe this is a good way to kind of uh, move into the conversation about how it became a historic site. But I, I am curious how it became a historic site. And also, since you mentioned the slave cabin, um, why did that survive when so many others didn't? Because you're right. I mean, um, I, I ran a historic site and we had a slave quarter that was no longer standing um, we knew where it was, but but so many of them have been lost from the normal sites to even, you know, places like Mount Vernon, as you say. So I'm curious um, how that happened and then maybe let the listeners know how you became a historic site and, and why it was decided to, to go that route. Well, I think we are we are fortunate to still have this one cabin and there were, were many others. We know that. But um, when the Satterleys bought the property in 1910, there was still a tenant farmer living in it. And that truly is the reason 
there is that that side is still standing. There were some modifications. There's a very, very rudimentary staircase that was not part of the original construction that's in it that went in at the time, uh, I think when it became a tenant farm house. And because that was still there, now it was in very rough shape uh, back in the um, I think 1980 when a, a first restoration was done up at the site and it was really becoming in, in precarious condition. But since then, there have been a, a new, numerous reconstruction efforts uh, and re, um, rehabilitation efforts on the cabin. We have another one that's gonna be going on soon with an African-American heritage preservation program. But there is something when you walk into that cabin and you walk into this small space that I'm 5'9", and I am practically hitting my head on the beams. And you are looking in this, and you think of 12 to 20 people living in that spot. And you can reach out, and you're touching it, and you think of the people that were in there. The impact I have watched on visitors is profound. They know it is not a reconstruction. It's not... Imagining it, you, you, you take it takes you there in a way that it, there's no way to reconstruct that. You can see the marks on the walls from the years. You can see where they made a, a place to sharpen the knife on the mantle of the of the or on the um, fireplace. You can see how they even created that. There are are, are pieces that you can see that show the people that live there and the strength and the resilience of the people that live there. And it is profoundly different having that incredible building to be able to tell our story. Um, when we look at how the, the um, uh, nonprofit actually started, the last uh, owner that owned the site was Mabel Ingalls. Her, her father and mother, Herbert and Louisa Satterley, had owned the site. And at the time of their deaths in, in 1949, um, she ended up buying Satterley from their estate and she owned it. She decided to start a nonprofit um, and back in 1960, but she still owned the site until the time of her death. So she would run tours but a lot of the tours were more of the fun, you know, look at the great, you know, fun architecture and look at the, um, how pretty it is and, and the stories. I'm sure pirates and other things came into it. There were lots of legends that were passed down. So tours were a little bit different back then. I'll, I'll say that. Um, at the time of her death, she did deed the site and um, most of the property um, not all of it, but most of the property that, that was still in her possession to historic, uh, what is now historic Sotterley. The name has changed a few times. And um, unfortunately, um, when the site did take over and, they, and there, were, there, was a trust, there were trustees that she'd already established and the trustees are trying to make it work, um, they didn't have the money to keep it going. They were really wondering if in the uh, mid-1990s, about 95, are we going to have to sell this place? Because we don't even know how to keep it going. And um, at the time, there were incredible trustees on the board. Two in particular are have, helped, have really defined who we are today. One was Agnes Kane Callum. 
She was descended from those who were enslaved at Sauterly in the 19th century. And she had traced her ancestry here and had been bringing people down since the 1970s when she realized this is actually where her family was from. She knew about the oral histories, but through her genealogy, she traced down here. And she served on the board with John Hanson Briscoe, who was former Speaker of the House of Maryland, uh, descended from slave-owning families. In fact, his family owned her family. So these two were serving on the board together. And because these two incredible people that they were, in fact, I don't think he fully recognized the story of the enslaved until Agnes shared it with him. That is not usually what is the happy stories that are passed down through generations. And he was, you know, they were so accepting of each other. They, they looked at each other as co-owners of Sauterly now, and they both felt like these stories needed to be preserved. So with the unique interplay between the two of them, they were able to get on a few nationally televised shows. They were on the Today Show and, and a Sunday morning show. And um, soon thereafter, there was a, a Save America's Treasures grant, which did some critical restoration work, allowed the organization to kind of get its feet underneath it and then start membership programs, uh, start to develop special events, other things to keep the site going. So it's been an interesting progression. Yeah, and it's such an interesting story in the way that uh, I don't I don't know how to say this delicately, but you know I think there's a lot of push within nonprofits where we need to diversify our board or we need to add diversity, and sometimes uh, it's almost lip service, um, or it's almost like, well, it's the right thing to do, should we, so we should do it. But I think what Sodderly teaches us in that that moment, which I think is so important, I'm so glad you shared that in the way that you did, is that it's not just about it's the right thing to do; it's the it, it it can save places. Bringing those diverse voices together creates a really powerful combination. So it it's not only the right thing to do, it's the thing that we must do in order to save these places. And it's just such a powerful way of conveying that and, and really underscores just the tremendous value um, in bringing all those voices to the table because when everybody's there, you know, there's just an, an, an incredible amount of things that can be accomplished um, that can't be otherwise. So um, I just think it's such a such a fantastic story, and I, I really hope more people know about it. I think maybe what we can do here is let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, let's talk about how you can have continued to engage the descendant community, and maybe give other sites around the country who are thinking about doing that kind of work some advice or some um, some of your experiences that might help them as they think how, through how they might do that. And we'll do that right here in PreserveCast when we come back. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. 
To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Gladys Noon Spellman, a pioneering civic-minded elected official, read by Ellie Colmers Cowan, Director of Advocacy at Preservation Maryland. Gladys Noon Spellman. U.S. Representative Gladys Noon Spellman was a civic-minded Maryland school teacher and PTA advocate when she signed onto a reform slate running for the Prince George's County Commission in 1962. She became the first woman on the commission and, by 1966, she was running it. She would go on to dismantle the county's political machine. At first, Spellman was sure that any idea of hers would get trampled. She would pass proposals along to her male colleagues and let them take the credit. However, one of them praised her for thinking like a man. At first, she thought of the compliment, then she got angry. She said, well, I guess today was an off day for me. Tomorrow, I'll be myself and do better, she told the biographer. She became notoriously vocal about her achievements, including the adoption of a home rule charter in 1970 and zoning reforms that led to more open space and senior centers. In 1974, spurred by the Watergate scandal, Spellman ran for Congress. When she was sworn in, men outnumbered women in that house by a margin of 20 to one. Spellman was a tenacious advocate for her constituents, nearly 40% of whom were federal employees, the biggest percentage in the country and largely in blue and pink collar positions. She fought for cost of living raises, making the civil service less vulnerable to political swings. Spellman was also a tireless campaigner. No crowd was too small, no cause too obscure. By 1980, Republicans considered her unbeatable, but four days before the general election, Spellman was judging a children's Halloween contest in Laurel when she collapsed from a heart attack. She won with 80% of the vote anyway, but she remained in a coma until her death eight days later at age 70. 400 people attended her funeral, including the first term Senator Barbara Mikulski, who remembered her as a big sister and mentor. Today, the memory of Gladys Noon Spellman is kept alive by the Maryland stretch of the Baltimore-Washington Parkway, which is named in her honor. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're joined by Nancy Easterling, who is the Executive Director of Historic Sodderly. And before we took our break, we were talking about um, all things Sodderly and how they really used the the descendant community, both slave owners and the enslaved um, and the descendants thereof, to not only tell the story, but in, in some ways save the site in the 1990s. Um, and just the tremendous value of building that that diverse um, board and and diversity in in voices and leadership, um, and but but the story doesn't stop there in terms of engaging the descendant community, which I think is so cool. It, it continues to this day. Um, so how does that play out? How does the descent the descendant community of both slave owners and enslaved um, continue to be a part of the of the site? Um, I think people would be really interested to hear that. Well, um, to step back for just a minute, you know, um, in looking at how even even back in the last 10 to 15 years, 
the descendants have helped shape Soderley's trajectory has been really critical. Looking at Agnes and John Hansen, that really did set in motion. And since that day, there has been there have been descendants on the board. Since that day, we have always had descendants on the board. Um, in fact, today we have five. But there are um, with that interpretation, with that acknowledgement from the get-go when this site almost was lost and make no mistake those two and that board were the reason this site is still here today but Agnes in particular with her uh, research with her genealogy with her oral histories helped shape our site's interpretation and helped lead us on the path so we could think what does that next step need to be she was the help person that helped create the Slavery to Freedom program that I mentioned. Her, her oral histories helped shape the, pro, the programmings that we do. But we also became, um, we, we decided that we have to be more holistic and, and not silo information. And if there's one thing that I can say for some sites that are interpreting slavery, and, and this comes also from that guidance from our descendants, is not to silo your information. Don't just set an exhibit up over here and say, here's where you can talk about it. You need to make sure it's in all of your signage, your programming, your, your tours, your education programs, the way that you conduct you know, your, your, well, your brochures, your, your website. Don't just do a token something to have it over there and say, I checked that block. She helped us see it needed to be integrated across all platforms. And we ended up redoing, we did a reinterpretation plan. We did a, uh, we ended up creating a new, uh, new tour. We created guided tours. We did create an introductory video. We redid our signage. We redid our brochures. We created a living history called The Choice about Sarali's 1812 story. Um, we have uh, become a Middle Passage Port Markers site, a part of an international project. We became a UNESCO site of memory for the Slave Route Project a year and a half ago. We created a land, lives, and labor exhibit, an exhibit talking about um, the sweat equity, you know, the people on whose sweat equity this site was built. We created a, an exhibit within our slave cabin that's dedicated to memory of Agnes Kane Callum. All of these things built upon those interactions and those between all of the different people with, within our descendant community. And as our descendants have grown on the board, descendants, and we look at descendants um, perhaps differently than other people would. We look at it as anybody within any part of our story. We have descendants whose families worked here under Maple Ingle, Ingalls during the um, 19, um, early to mid 1900s. We have people that were traced to enslaved. We have people that are traced to owners on the board and part of our story. And so they've not only helped us develop a new and uh, a new and more holistic interpretation. And I say new, it's about reframing history. And they have helped us reframe history, not just the facts that were the easier ones to pull out, but the ones that were harder to pull out. And um, bringing their 
information and our descendants have enriched our interpretation because they are always bringing new facts, things that we didn't know to us and new, new tidbits. So they are part of an ongoing growing part of who we are. They also, as I mentioned, not only have been part of the board, but they are, we formally started a descendants project the same year that we dedicated uh, the slave cabin exhibit to Agnes Kane Callum. And that was um, just a couple of years ago. And so now, in fact, back in 2017, and those um, years that we've had the descendants, self-identified descendants, well over 200 self-identified descendants from over 30 states and four countries are part of this descendants project. And what is so humbling to, for me to be part of an organization that has these descendants, they are truly modeling for this nation how people from very diverse backgrounds, maybe even diverse ways of thinking can come together and have dialogues and discussions. And they have been a driving force between our common ground programming, which is in its third year now, of bringing forward thought-provoking ways of addressing topics, ways of interacting with each other to keep the discussion and dialogue going because we need to, we want to foster understanding, dialogue, trying to lead toward a place of healing for some. If we can, we can get there, there's a long way to go in this nation, but it is about honest acknowledgement of the the past, creating a better understanding and trying to see a perspective other than your own. And our descendants have been incredible with that. Absolutely incredible. In fact, when we had uh, a ceremony last year, as we celebrated with an internationally with the UNESCO organization for the 400th remembrance of those who came to this nation enslaved. We had a ceremony here at Sauterley with a few hundred people here with us, a lot of descendants. When we remembered those who came here against their will and, and those, some of those who were lost middle passage 29 people on that first ship that we know of, the generous Jenny that came here to Sauterley, that were lost under horrific conditions. And we told the bell 29 times to remember them. And then our descendants came up and gave voice to their ancestors. And it was incredibly moving. And people saw that people allowed, allowed you to be comfortable in being uncomfortable. And sometimes that's family necessary yeah i um yeah i can't say enough good things about your interpretation and i think people listening should be thinking about how they can how they can do this work whether they run a historic site like Sauterley or or a historic site with other descendants there's there's always people connected to these places and i think the big picture too is that there's just there's a richness to the story that you tell because there's a sense that there are people connected to this. And so when you go there and you visit your site, um, it's, it's not like you say, it's not just about architecture and pretty things. Um, it's about the people who, who lived there, um, and their stories, the, the good stories, the bad stories, everything in between. 
Um, so what's next for Soderly? Obviously, tough question to ask in the middle of a pandemic and uh, all of your earned income is off the table and it's a scary time for every museum out there. But but where are you guys headed and, and what are your dreams for the site um, moving forward? You know, one of the things that we have really tried to do is, is um, really push for striving for equity. I guess that's a, a big thing that we are uh, pushing for it with our common ground programming, but we even have a growing for good program and in, in an out of the box thing that we're doing for the past six years, we have established a growing for good program where we put the site back under a production um, uh, agriculturally and we have given almost all the produce to our local food pantries. There is such a need in every community, and, and during this pandemic, oh my gosh, is it? You know, we're, we're all so aware of it, of those who don't have access to nutritional food. So we have been growing food here, giving it away. It was particularly difficult um, during this year. We have our wonderful facilities and farm manager, his family, and others in the community. You step forward to keep that growing for good program, even when we couldn't get together because we usually did potato planting, potato harvesting days with the community to get people out and to keep the program alive. Um, I think some of us, sometimes we need to think creatively about how we can make an impact our community, not just in the traditional ways, but in other ways. And we want to keep that going forward. We are still planning more common ground programming, ways that we can bring people together to um, think about programming that, or think about um, ways that we can find out more about ourselves or our, our common and shared past. We've had a number of things that have gone on this year. And if there's anything positive from the from what's going on in the past year. And sometimes it's hard to think of what that is. The fact that we've had to do so much of our program virtually has made our ability to reach farther. We've had participants from California, from Florida, being on some of our virtual programming and we've been able to record it. And now it's on our website. So if you missed our past programming, you know, look at our common ground programming, Kenyatta Berry, who was part of Genealogy Roadshow, was part of a two-day event where we could find out more about enslaved research or, or the impact of finding, you know, using DNA in your research and a lot of other ways where we can explore um, our common past. Jeannie Pertle, our Director of Educational Programming Partnerships, has been doing a big picture event every week where we, she looks at different topics. We've kept up our, our speaker series with a lot of different topics going on. So I think that there have been ways to reach out and keep that content. So if you miss something, you didn't really miss it. So I'm glad that we're able to do that. So we're going to keep up with the virtual content as much as we can. We never closed our site during the pandemic. We realized some people needed to find a place they could socially distance and just, you know, have a moment to reflect. And Soderly was that place over the last months and will continue to be that place. But we are still looking at ways of continuing to improve the way that we tell our stories the way that we connect. I don't think any site out there can ever stop doing that. You can never, you have to keep moving the bar higher and higher for yourself because there's so much work 
that needs to be done. And with so much that's happening in our nation right now in a time of unrest, our, like I said, our descendants are modeling how we can come together and talk and listen to each other. And we know that it is our responsibility to keep that side of what we're doing going. Well, if people weren't sold on Soderly and the good work that you're doing um, before this, they are absolutely sold now, I'm certain, because um, you speak with great eloquence about this. And um, the, the proof is in, in the, the fantastic site that um, you and others have put together over many years. Um, so it's, it's, it's just so good to hear from you. And good to hear that we've got good plans moving forward and that, um, that you know, as we come out of COVID-19, um, Soderly will be there to keep having these important conversations. Um, if people want to learn more about Soderly, they want to go on a virtual program, they want to make a donation, um, where can they find you online? So go to www.soderly.org for our website. Um, there in the news section in the vault, you can find a lot of our pre-recorded items. We also have a YouTube page. We have a Soderly YouTube page where you can find a lot of information. We are on Facebook, we're on Instagram, so you can keep up with all the things that are going on. Jeannie's uh, big picture events are usually Facebook live events. So we we're on a lot of different platforms. You can find us in a lot of different ways. And of course, you know, of course, we love our members and our and our donors. They are the backbone right now at being a place that's not county, state or federal and does not have an endowment. It is the people that believe in what we're doing that keep us going. And so we always love people that will say we believe in what you're doing and, and come and, and help with that. So but please do come and check out the content, check out the things that we've got, check out our story. And you can do that online. So before we let you go, most difficult question we ask of anyone, um, which is your favorite historic place or site, and we'll let you, we'll give you a pass. You don't have to. It's outside of Soderly, because that's always always very difficult for someone who runs a historic site. They always feel like they have to say, "Well, Soderly, of course." So we're outside of Soderly, your favorite historic place or site. You know that was just a terrible question to ask. Truly, it was because. I just love so many different places that I've gone, but I do remember, as I look back on all the places I've gone, all the places that had a moment for me, I think the places, I, I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit, I've got two. But okay, two, that's fine. Two for two different reasons. When you have, a, when you have a, a moment at a site, when you have that moment of connection or that, oh, that just, or, or a moment of, oh my goodness, that awareness moment. One was just going up to Gettysburg. And I think it's because I had just read The Killer Angels. And um, I would say, if you ever go to Gettysburg, please read The Killer Angels first. Because when I went there, I could see it, I could hear it. Because of that book, that site had an impact. All of a sudden, I could see where everything happened. And the reality, you know, so sometimes a landscape can have a, a true reality. And, and Gettysburg did for me. I saw the people. I, didn't, I, I wasn't listening to the cannons when I was there. I was seeing the lives of the people from the Killer Angels. So, so that one had a, 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 a several moments for me where I could see that person that I'd heard about and think thought about that. The other, just because I have loved watching their progression, has been um, Montpelier. And there are so many sites in, in Maryland that are incredible that I, I could have mentioned as well. But 
When I went to Montpelier um, seven or eight years ago, they were really in that part of stripping away the DuPont edifice and, and starting on a, on a different interpretation. And I had never been to a site before that said on the tour, we don't have all the answers yet, but we're still looking for them. And they did that. And I thought, okay, now that is cool. You're not even telling me that you're, you've got every answer out there that you are. They were still putting together uh, what they, they were still on, on a, on a journey and they let you know that they were still on the journey. They were still getting there. And they also have a descendants program, a project. Theirs is different in that theirs is, is focusing on the enslaved community that was there because, um, the, and I know, in fact, one of our former board members is actually one of their descendants and has been, is on our preservation restoration interpretation committee. But I thought what bravery to take on a real shift in what they're doing, uh, being very honest also about a difficult side of the past and really embracing it and embracing it well and being willing to say, we're, we're, we're not completely cooked yet because we know as we're, we're moving and we're changing this, it, and it made me want to go back because I said, every time I go back, I bet you I'm going to be learning something new that they've included in there. And I thought it was a wonderfully brave thing to do. And I thought it was um, particularly moving. Well, those are two great answers. Um, and uh, you know, baked into that, I, I like that idea that that the work is never done, that we don't know all the answers. And um, I think Soderly bringing it back here um, is, is, a, is a good example of that, where um, you don't have all the answers, but you continue to tell the story and engage new voices and talk to new people. And um, it's a great place. And uh, I encourage everyone to go out and visit it when they're next time they're in the area and uh, things are back up and running. Um, and, uh, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today and, uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. It has been an absolute joy. It always is a joy with you, Nick, but I'm so happy to share Sarley's story and thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving. <laughs>